Hello and welcome to another In Deep Radio show. I'm Angie Corro. What a week. The word vagina got slung around like the whole country had turned into an OBGYN convention. A Washington state congressional candidate asked women to come out of the abortion closet and then got slammed for applauding abortion. And why in the world does the U.S. give J.P. Morgan Chase $14 billion a year? That's all coming up on In Deep. The following is not the music you expect to hear. Vaginas. See? Vaginas. Vaginas. (laughs) But it's just as good as the usual to introduce our own buttercup, our demented sidekick, Gotta Laugh, who's bringing us her own particular take on vaginas. I mean, on the news (laughs) of the week. Girl, what have you done now? (laughs) I don't know. It's another blunt song parody thing. But, you know, I was thinking of asking uh, Willard Romney over for coffee and chocolate goodies. Uh, Not vaginas, but chocolate goodies. um, But I decided against it because he can never seem to commit one way or the other to a play date. So I'm not going to I'm not going to do that at all. I I just figured it's his loss. Yeah, it's Romney and commitment kind of just don't go together like peanut butter and transmission fluid. Well, exactly what I was thinking. Odd that you would say that. <laughs> um, but no, you know, he, he did the interview on Face the Nation and he they could, what's it, Bob Schieffer could not nail him down. And so here today he had this opportunity uh, to, to finally come out and take a stand in a speech that he did before the National Association of Latino Elected Officials Conference and he blew it again. He was full of, I will, I will, I won't, the president, he's bad, I hate him. Um, and 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 instead, he just came out at the end saying, when I make a promise to you, I will keep it. So I'm thinking to myself, what promise? Based <laughs> on, based if you on don't make what? any, you have nothing to keep. That was pretty nothing smart. To keep. What leadership? What, 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 what about spine? What about, what about anything but we'll see? You know, he hasn't said anything yet, but here's what we may do. Yes. Yeah, which is very safe. You know what I really liked about the Bob? There were two things I liked about the Bob Schieffer interview. One is he wanted uh, he wanted Romney to answer the question, would you reverse this policy from Barack Obama? And as a good journalist should, he repeatedly, politely, and professionally kept repeating it. So even though we didn't really get an answer, we knew we hadn't gotten an answer. Exactly. And, and that's why I don't think he's getting away with it anymore. I think that people are finally figuring, because that was a mainstream show. That's a, what, a CBS show? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there you go. And the other thing that struck me was the bus came off so much better than Romney. The bus was center screen. They had Bob Schieffer on the right of the bus. They had Romney on the left of the bus, ironically enough. And and the bus from the Mitt Romney tour is center screen. And here's Romney fussing and fudging and, you know, not answering any questions. And here's this bus gleaming and gorgeous and at this racy angle. And I thought, damn, that bus looks good. So And the bus moves <laughs> forward as opposed to Mitt Romney. The bus does <laughs> And shiny and pretty like Romney's hair. <laughs> hey, let's go to the world of some other crazy people. And that would be more oh. of the Republicans. This is a, this is courtesy of something you picked up from Rachel Maddow. Yeah, she did a big 18-minute segment on Fast and Furious and its genesis. And it was amazing. She was talking about, she was saying you need a decoder ring to figure this out. But it all boils down to this crazy militia guy in Alabama named Michael Vanderbo. And he was really upset that health care reform had passed. So he started instructing people on his blog to go break windows. And so people started breaking windows and the GOP started paying attention to this guy and having him be a speaker and he went on talk radio. And then, then he moved on. Wait, wait, to- how does Ailey do be. He started breaking windows, so the Republicans he, started engaging he, he asked, as a speaker. He, people started breaking. No, he didn't. He instructed his readers oh. to. They did start breaking windows, including at the Democratic Party headquarters and public officials' 
uh, offices. So the GOP took notice and made him into sort of a, a go-to guy. So this go-to guy who, who told everyone to break windows, who's in a militia, who's kind of nuts, for the last 27 months has led GOP Congress members to vote <laughs> Attorney General Holder in contempt of Congress. Oh, for God's sake. listen to this guy. He somehow convinced them that Obama was selling guns or was getting these guns across to uh, across the border so that violent people would use them and that everybody would get scared and say, oh, we should have gun control. And that's become the through line. My gosh, that is as bizarre as anything I've ever heard out of the Republican Party. And that's a hell of a statement. But the best part is what Rachel said, and I'm going to quote her. This is exactly as crazy as it seems. This is a very strange and implausibly and perhaps as impossibly implausible cockamamie make your cell phone out of aluminum foil thing that has animated the right for more than a year now, cooked up by the guy who told people to go to break people's windows after health reform passed. This from, quote, addled, cartoonishly paranoid mind of a guy whose whole living is predicated on you being afraid of stuff that's not actually happening. Inside that bizarre, factually suffocated bubble of opportunistic, paranoid, cockamamie, factless, break their windows <laughs> nonsense is most of the Republican Party of the United States of America. <sighs> ah, my crush on Rachel has just deepened. Oh, yeah, I'm marrying her tomorrow. I didn't ah, tell you. Ah, stand back. I said first. Oh, Can okay. we wrap this up with a nice, warm puppy story? It's not so warm. An ex-Hooters waitress, who is now a GOP Tennessee state representative, her name is Julia Hurley, there's a video she took down. She, she took it down because it was somebody's hands holding her dog out a window of a car going pretty darn fast, holding this dog way out over the pavement, and the, sh- the wind is blowing this dog, and the dog's kind of air running, air swimming with oh, his God. paws. And so people started criticizing her, and she said, well, I think it's a liberal ploy to take the attention off the bills and the legislation I've passed and the positive things I've done to make me look like a bad person. My dog obviously enjoys it. She's very happy. <sighs> well, no, the dog could die, so no, wrong. Well, it was a convertible. What do you want to do, put it on top of a top that's not there? Silly <laughs> us. As always, got to laugh. I have to thank you for bringing us the best of the Internet, and we have links up to all of our stories that you brought us at indeepradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. It's In Deep. I'm Angie Coro. Thank you for joining us. We're going to be hearing from Darcy Berner later this hour about her now notorious speech at Netroots Nation. And we'll be talking to one of the two Michigan representatives who were gagged on the floor of the Michigan House because they used the V words, vagina and vasectomy. First, though, we're looking into it. Well, I heard it as a rumor. And we know that Twitter is about as reliable as Wikipedia. It's a good, good pointer. But if you hear anything there, you'd better track it down. When I heard that J.P. Morgan was getting U.S. subsidies of $12 billion per year, subsidies from the U.S. government, I thought, that's got to be an exaggeration or there's got to be more to it than that. There is more to it than that, but it's not an exaggeration. Patrick Garofalo is joining me now on the line, and he is the economic policy editor for Think Progress. Patrick, I'm glad to have you on board. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. And I also, I want to note, I'm very glad I found your column. And for anybody who wants to keep track of things, financial and economic policies, et cetera, I'm discovering now that your column is, is really a great resource, and I'm glad I found it. And you did dig into this report of the $14 billion annual subsidy from the U.S. government. Why in the world does J.P. Morgan Chase need that, and why do they get that? Well, they get that purely because of their size. It's not that some lawmaker sits down and says, okay, what we're going to do this year in the budget is give J.P. Morgan Chase $14 billion. That doesn't happen. 
But because J.P. Morgan Chase is so big, and because it's explicitly backed by the taxpayer, we know that if J.P. Morgan Chase fails, it's going to get bailed out. So in essence, it can't go away. It's always going to be around. That lowers their borrowing costs. They're able to go out and borrow money cheaper than other banks, cheaper than you or me, cheaper than the small business down the street, because they're so big and because their lenders know that the bank is going to get bailed out at the end of the day. So the worth of that lower borrowing cost, because they are backed by the taxpayer, is about $14 billion a year. Well, is it an exaggeration? I, I read in the Huffington Post, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with their coverage of this, but they were talking about the Senate Banking Committee's treatment of the J.P. Morgan Chase CEO, and according to them, the CEO insisted that it was the government who pressed bailout money on them, it was the government that lets them borrow at rock-bottom interest rates, and the government insisted that do so for the sake of appearance and the good of the country. And I, I couldn't tell if that was tongue-in-cheek. Is, is, is that actually the approach of J.P. Morgan Chase? Yeah, and it's not just them. That's what um, several of the big banks say. It was always the other guy who was in trouble and who had to be saved, and, and our bank was just fine. That's what they all say. It is really hard to tell who's lying and who's not in that instance, but at the end of the day, the entire financial system was really shaky, and this is one of the biggest banks in the world. Who knows where they were, but they, they were hurting at that time as much as any other bank was. But that's the line they've taken. Their, their defense is... When people say, oh, you've been bailed out, so now you owe taxpayers something as well, you made us take the bailout. You know, it's interesting because the, the phrase too big to fail has already come up. And when we first heard that, there was a sense of urgency to it. That was back before the bailouts, back before some solutions had been plotted. And the concept was greeted more readily with more w- willingness. And now when we hear too big to fail, it's with a roll of the eyes and big quotation marks. Do you think that now that the word is out that this monster of a banking institution is getting $14 billion a year, do you think too big to fail resonates with the American people? I think it does. I think it has to this whole process, honestly, when everything was going down in 2008 and the government was suddenly running in and throwing $700 billion at the banks. I think that resonated. The problem is it doesn't really matter if that resonates with the American people because the banks are so powerful on Capitol Hill that regardless of what people are thinking, if we can't get Congress to actually do something about these guys and to actually make them shrink and to actually separate their risky investments from their standard commercial banking, then it doesn't matter. That's where the action is. At this point, you have to kind of break the power of them on Capitol Hill. Otherwise, I mean, it just doesn't matter what the American people think, sadly. I'm talking to Patrick Garofalo. He's economic policy editor for thinkprogress.org. I'm going to be mentioning a number of his columns in the next few minutes. You don't need to rush to write anything down. We're putting them all online at indeepradio.com. You looked into a study that the House Republican budget would actually, (laughs) I don't know why this surprised me, would raise taxes on the middle class, but cut them for millionaires. And I I guess the audacity of the Republicans never stuns me, but that seems to be, the study came out from the Joint Economic Committee. Independent experts, as you noted, have already looked at it and said, yes, this is an accurate report. I kind of wonder if you have any insight into why they think that would fly. I think they're hoping that people don't notice. Honestly, every iteration of the Republican budget that's come out in the last few years has had this problem. And, and the problem is actually for a really interesting reason. They, they do go through and they want to slash the heck out of everybody's tax rate. But 
since President Obama came into office, he has expanded two really important tax credits. One is the earned income tax credit, and the other is the child tax credit. And so he's expanded them, he's made them available for more people at different income levels. The Republicans, though they want to extend all of the Bush tax cuts, most importantly the ones that the, for the richest 2% of Americans, they do not want to extend those two ta- the expansion of those two tax credits. So the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit expansions would go away under the Republican plan. So that's why people in the middle of the income scale would actually see their taxes increase, even though all we ever hear all day long from Republicans is tax cut this, tax cut that, tax cut can fix everything, got a hole in your roof, you just need a tax cut. <laughs> because they because they don't want because they don't want to extend those two particular credits, middle class people would actually see their taxes increase. And it's the same thing in the in the in the Ryan budget for the last couple of years and all the budget plans that the Republicans have brought forward they all kind of suffer from the same problem where the rate that rich people are paying is more important than the credits that people in the middle class are getting. I'm hearing this in the context of, you know, Occupy is going for its big national gathering this weekend, and I'm hearing this in the context of their cry for President Barack Obama to take a stronger stance against Wall Street, to take a stronger stance on, you know, looking at the tax situation of the people who really do need the cuts, looking at the tax situation of about extending the Bush cuts. And it strikes me that we're hearing more willingness from President Obama to look at the tax cuts issue than he is to look at the Wall Street issues. Is that your take as well? I think that's true, yes. He'd much rather talk about the tax cuts for the rich rather than the bank fight. I mean, honestly, President Obama, one of his biggest accomplishments, though it had a lot of problems, and it certainly isn't the bill I would have written if I were writing it, he did get financial reform through a Congress that is almost entirely owned by the banks. So that actually was an accomplishment, and I find it really odd that he never talks about it. He mentions it as an aside in his speech and then goes and talks about other stuff. But with the power of Occupy, with the way the American people are feeling towards the banks, not just in terms of big bailouts, but in their everyday kind of nickel-and-dimed fee this, ATM charge that, banks taking a cut of food stamps, banks taking a cut of unemployment insurance, he never really talks about it, even though substantively he's done much more on the banking side than he has on the tax side. Are his, and I haven't researched this, I'm relying utterly on on your knowledge of this, we often hear that what President Obama is doing on civil rights issues and on military issues, that there's that disconnect between his public face and what's really happening. Does that seem to be the case with financial and economic issues? Are his ties more nefarious than we might, you know, publicly realize? Are his, his loyalties to Wall Street deeper than perhaps we realize? What's your take on that? I don't think so. I don't think any more so than any other politician. Like, he does certainly get money from the biggest banks, not more or less than other politicians running around. I think it's, it's, it's partly that he does realize that because the banks throw their weight around so much on Capitol Hill, that's oftentimes a kind of fruitless fight and he can't get anything substantively done. Mm-hmm. And then another part of it is just the circles and the people you're running in, the people you're kind of interacting with all the time. He is probably not seeing a lot of people who are having, you know, Bank of America take a chunk of their food stamps because they got offered this silly little debit card and he eats up fees on the side. He doesn't run across those people. He runs across Jamie Dimon wandering around the hill. I, I think that's mostly the explanation for it. But I, I, honestly, I think it's more the former where it's really hard to get things substantively done and you pay a big price on the hill for doing it. And he did get a big bill through and now it's kind of been time to, to work on other things. 
talking to Pat Garofalo of thinkprogress.org. There's one more of your columns that I wanted to look at. It, it too relates to Wall Street. And that is that even as the House Republicans were voting to cut funding for the CFTC, that's the Commodity Futures Trading Company, the watchdog for Wall Street, the regulator, uh, pardon me, the uh, financial services chairman, also a member of the GOP, was admitting that the watchdog was underfunded. So uh, try to unravel that story for me. This is, this is one of the most maddening things to me that's going on on Capitol Hill right now. The Republicans failed to stop the Dodd-Frank financial reform law from, from passing, and so it was signed into law, and it's supposed to be moving forward. So what they've done to undermine it is they've said that the two agencies that are largely charged with implementing the law, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, just can't have the money to implement it. And so the law is there, but these two agencies just don't have the resources to actually go out and implement it and enforce it and write the rules and hire enough regulators to get the job done. And so it's actually kind of surprising to see House Financial Services Chairman Spencer Bacchus, who actually said, and I'm not making this up, in 2010 he said that Washington's role is to, quote, serve the banks, end quote. Um, He actually admitted that the agencies don't have enough resources to do the job that Congress and the president have said they need to do by law, it's really maddening. It's a perfect way to kind of render government ineffective and then go out and campaign against ineffective government. So they can say, oh, we passed this big financial reform law, and it's not doing anything. And it's not doing anything because they made sure that the regulators didn't have the resources to do anything. You do a good job of unraveling this in your various columns, and I'm just wondering how much traction you feel like this kind of explanatory column is getting with the public, or do they look at uh, a Representative Backus and, and take him at his word? Do you think Americans are starting to understand what's going on? I think they are. I think Occupy has been one of the most heartening developments in public policy and political discourse in the last couple of years. Not that it's perfect, um, and not that it doesn't have its problems, but I think it's focusing attention on this particular area, which for decades has flown under the radar. We've been deregulating financial services for how long? And finally, in the last kind of year and a half, it's been, no, this is really, because of Occupy, an area that you need to focus on. I look at the kind of little Occupy offshoots. There's this really great group that you should go and look up called Occupy the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And they go through and they actually write comment letters about the pending regulations that the regulators are working on. And they're really great substantive comment letters laying out the case for stronger regulations. And so that sort of stuff does give me hope. It's a nasty area because of how big the banks are, but that sort of thing makes me a little more hopeful. Patrick Garofalo, thank you so much. Pat Garofalo is with thinkprogress.org, and links to all of his columns are online at indeepradio.com. We'll be right back. Some say I need a driver, a Nixon mask and gun. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that's not how you get a bank job done. You can't walk in there brazen with a newsy like Patty Hearst. I'm going to secure myself a seat on the board of directors first. Oh, that's how you rob a bank. I'll get some decent suits and a bogus business plan Become well-versed in the etiquette of Wall Street Disneyland 
Hit the country clubs, eating peanuts and drinking scotch. Talk the recent trends and fart into a velvet couch. Oh, that's how you rob a bank. I get a foundation to give me thanks and give my congressman a wank. Apologize for all I drank when I pulled that goldfish from the tank and gave those debutantes a spank. Oh, that's how you rob a bank. This is In Deep. I'm Angie Cuero. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to talk about probably one of the most prominent stories of the week, but it was only talked about so much on the floor of the Michigan legislature because conversation about this sort of thing and from these sort of people was shut down. I'm sure you've heard about the great vagina debate where state lawmaker Lisa Brown used the word vagina when they were discussing abortion and uh, potential abortion regulations on the floor of the Michigan Congress. And also, State Representative Barb Byram chimed in. She was proposing stricter regulations on vasectomies. Now, we've seen this kind of thing before where people try to very patiently and calmly point out there are parallels. If you want to regulate the genital gifts of one sex, then perhaps you could consider it in light of modifying the, gen- <laughs> the genital gifts of the opposite sex so you can see how there may be some injustice you otherwise may not perceive. Let me bring on Representative Barbara Byram and see, I don't know, if you think that comparison stands up. Well, you know, it certainly does because if the goal is to maximize the number of births in um, in the state or in, in the nation, then we need to talk about other surgeries that limit births. And that would be vasectomies. And because the state does not regulate, regulate vasectomies in our state, there are arguably less children that are being born. Wait, what's interesting to me is that we know that the vagina clip from, Senator, from uh, Congresswoman Brown was heard very widely and has been repeated a lot. I think the parallel and the importance of your comment on vasectomies was just as much. Is there a reason that the vagina comment seemed to get more and your very valid comparison to vasectomies tended to fall by the wayside? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, you know, for, for mine, mine was an amendment to that House Bill 5711, so I rose my hand and said, Mr. Speaker, I'd like to speak. Mr. Speaker, I'd like to speak to my amendment. Mr. Speaker. <laughs> and um, he didn't allow me to speak, so um, I guess... The amount of words, if you're looking at the content, it was in Representative Brown's um, floor speech in opposition to the bill. And you were banned from speaking from the floor. Now, was that a matter of them tell- when they didn't respond to you saying, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, or was the ban more explicit and subsequent to that? You know, the interesting thing is, is um, they didn't tell us of the ban. We learned um, Representative Lisa Brown had um, a bill that she wanted to speak in opposition to the following day, which was last Thursday, and I had a bill that I ne- or well, quite a few voter suppression bills that I needed to speak in opposition to. And our floor leader, the Democratic floor leader Kate Siegel, who's a strong woman in her own right, um, came to me at least, and and then later to Representative Brown and said, um, "You're not going to be recognized today." And I said, "I'm what?" 
She said, well, they're not going to let you speak today. And I said, why? She said, I don't know. And I said, well, can I ever speak? And she said, I, I don't know. They're not telling me anything. So I learned of it from my floor leader. And in fact, they went so far as I had guests there that were in the balcony. It's, um, it was Juneteenth, which is an African-American holiday. And um, they were in the balcony, and I was not even permitted to introduce my guests. Wow. Yeah, and I asked um, Floor Leader Siegel, are, are, I can't introduce my guests. Are you kidding me? I, I, I just want to introduce my guests. And she said, no, because she asked him. She did ask, can she at least do a guest introduction? And she said, no, um, he's a little upset about something you might have posted on Facebook. And I said, oh, wow. How, how is this different than blacklisting? How is this different? Than, I, I mean, I don't mean to sound hysterical here, but as I'm hearing more detail from you, I'm just appalled that anyone has the power to do that. You know, and it gets more appalling as the days had progressed. You know, I mean, that was Thursday. And Thursday, you know, I, I um, reached out to social media and let everyone know what was going on. And, and then the following, or later that day, I believe it was, they issued a press release saying that I had a temper tantrum and marched down the aisle like a small child. Whoa. Yeah. And, Would there not um, be footage of that if that actually occurred? I mean, we are immediately I mean, savvy. Well, it was physically impossible because I injured my knee the weekend before and in a 5K, or actually a yeah, four-mile race. So um, it's physically impossible. Um, there, it, the television didn't record me. It focuses on the Speaker of the House primarily or whoever mm-hmm. is speaking. And... The, the, referring to me as a child. Well, that's, and in fact, that had a I, follow-up because subsequently we, we heard from one of the Republican representatives that making the two of you sit down and shut up was akin to, was akin to a child having a temper tantrum and giving them a timeout. Yeah, yeah. The timeout comment came um, two days ago. Uh, another representative was interviewed on a radio, st- a radio show and he, he said it was like a timeout, like giving a kid a timeout. Last I checked... I was an elected state representative. I represent the same number of people as every other member of the Michigan House of Representatives. There are 110 state legislators. Um, to, uh, to refer to either Lisa Brown or myself as children is um, indicative of how misogynistic this Republican legislature is. I'm talking to Representative Barb Byram with the Michigan House of Representatives about the story that got so much prominence this week when she and one of her colleagues were essentially shut down for speaking directly to some legislation that was on the table, one of them using the word vagina, and Ms. Byram putting her focus on an amendment that would apply the same scrutiny to vasectomies that they would to abortions. I know the fallout from this has been huge and in some cases even international, but I'm wondering about Within the legislation itself, is light dawning on any of your colleagues for whom this might have initially seemed acceptable to where when the second comment about being a kid came out, did you see any light dawning? Did you see maybe some of the open minds starting to get why this is not acceptable? No, none. Absolutely none. They, um, I, I, wish, I wish I could tell you that, yes, I see them opening up, but I don't at all. Um, they, uh, I don't expect them to ever apologize um, for what they said about me or Representative Lisa Brown. Um, they are so sure that what they did was the right thing. They are so extreme 
in their beliefs and in their um, in the way they treat people that I don't see. I just don't see. Um, I, I I don't see an apology. Um, I I just don't know. You know, we're um, now on summer break is what we call it, and so we go back to session. I believe it's July 18th. So we actually won't be on the house floor until July 18th. However, I was there this morning. I was there yesterday morning. I have children that come to the Capitol for tours of the Capitol. So I, I'm, you know, I've been on the house floor, but I've not seen, I've not seen any of my Republican colleagues. Hmm. What about your Democratic colleagues? Have they have they chimed into you either privately or publicly? Um, quite a few of them have chimed in privately, um, just to say, you know, well done. I'm behind you. You're doing good. You know, the the most um, heartwarming comment that I received was during everything. Thursday in the early afternoon, my father called me and, and he said, so what, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm on the house floor. He said, well, what are you up to? I said, well, I'm, I'm voting no quite a bit right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and, and he uh, lowered his voice and he said, um, I know what's going on. And I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> and he said, keep it up. You're doing a great job. And that was just amazing that my father would, you know, call and, and say, keep it up. And then, of course, we haven't even talked about the fact that we had Vaginas Take Back the Capitol event on Monday night. We had the Vagina Monologues with Eve Ensler yes. on the Capitol steps Monday night. It was an amazing turnout. Um, pop, we, we had somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 people show up on the Capitol steps, men and women. Even my mom showed up. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it was, I, honestly, when I walked out of the Capitol, I saw all those people. I just, I couldn't believe it. I, I could not believe that all those people would come out after such a torrential downpour that we had earlier in that day. It was hotter and sin. And they all came out just to support Representative Brown and I. And it was such an empowering event. I had never been to a vagina monologue event. Um, and it was it was absolutely amazing. And the fact that Miss Ensler would fly all the way out to Michigan from California, because I know that flight, I know it's not a fun flight, right. um, was just, I mean, it was her one day off. And, you know, she came out to support women and to, you know, just, yeah, it was just, it was absolutely amazing, amazing. And that's good, and I'm really glad, but I think I'm stuck back on the point where these guys still don't get it. I was following the tweets of the speaker, and, and he quickly tried to dismiss this as having nothing to do with gender or content, but more of a matter of attitude. And, you know, we, we've heard about this subsequently when they're trying to talk about, you know, that, that it was a, a lack of decorum that they, that they were protesting. So I want I wanted to just quiz you a little bit on that. The sure, most sure. I, I grew up on the House floor. My mom was the former Democratic leader in the House. She was a former senator. So I have seen many things in relation to decorum on the House and Senate floor. And I will tell you, two women speaking passionately about issues that direct, directly impact their health, their sister's health, their mother's health, their grandmother's, their daughter's health, that did not lack decorum. Some of the things that I've seen that do lack decorum have, have not silenced members. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lack of decorum, that was the second, I think the second wave of excuses. The first was um, the words that we used, then it was decorum. And, and I guess now it's because Representative Brown said no means no. And they're changing their reason. And the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, two elected state representatives were banned from speaking on the House floor. 
And that has ripple effects because they didn't just ban me. They didn't just ban Representative Brown. They banned all of our constituents from having a voice on the House floor. And for that, they should be ashamed of themselves. They absolutely should, but I I doubt that they're ashamed. We're going to come back to this topic more with Representative Barb Byram of Michigan. But first, we're going to take a little break, during which we will enjoy this special contribution written and sung by Stephanie Walton, accompanied on maracas by Lauren Schiller. They are from The Lady Brain Show at theladybrainshow.com. Vagina. Have you ever seen my thing? It's so supreme. Yeah, you know I'm talking about my vagina. Do you want a piece of me? Yes, sirree. Naturally, you're thinking about my vagina. Lots of supple skin folds within. Gonna trim it up. I always keep it clean. See it gleam. Such a tidy box. I, 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 woo! My, my, my vagina. My vagina. You're listening to In Deep. I'm Angie Cuero, and I'm talking to Michigan Representative Barbara Byra on the state floor. She and Representative Lisa Brown were shut down after they tried their approach to some abortion regulations, which Representative Byram compared to vasectomies and tried to set up some analogous amendment there. And uh, Representative Lisa Brown was now rather famously advised them to please stay out of her business and no means no. And that's actually where I want to pick it up with you, Representative Byram, because if I were to look hard to grant legitimacy to what happened, I could look at the closing of Representative Brown's speech where she said no means no. And of course, in our society, in our culture, that's an allusion to rape. And I can conceivably see that someone on the other side could take legitimate offense at saying, you are comparing me to a rapist. Now, as you mentioned in our last segment, they didn't get around to mentioning the no means no until their third iteration of what the, what the actual problem was with, with an ever-changing explanation. But do you see any validity to that, that there may have been someone there who was legitimately offended at being compared to a rapist? And no, 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 no. Um, because the way she said it, I mean, if you look at pictures of Lisa Brown, she's a mother of three. She's a wife. She's a wonderful human being. I don't believe that was her intent. I don't believe um, the way she said it was offensive. Um, I've heard much more offensive things on the House floor. Um, and, and even if, let's, let's just assume that is true, they cannot take away her freedom of speech and her right to speak as a result of something she said. Mm-hmm. Um, that they silenced two elected officials. They, I mean, they wouldn't allow us to speak on Thursday. That's just, that's just that is so wrong. Yeah, well, and it also, I mean, it, 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 as, as you mentioned, it pretty much obviates the whole point of your being there to be the voice of your constituents. And you compared it to shutting your constituents down. Absolutely, it did. It totally shut our constituents down. We all, um, based on, um, based on the census, we all represent generally the same amount of people. Um, and we all should be equal. However, two of us were, you know, censored. Well, we've talked about the encouraging public response that you got. And, and as I said, I'm very glad to hear that. But I'm wondering if you have any recourse against what's essentially been a wrong done to you because you were elected to speak for the people, because you were disallowed on an illegitimate basis that no one's backing down for. I mean, an apology would be nice. but An that- apology would be nice, but I do not. I just don't see them getting over themselves to go far enough to apologize. I mean, they're so extreme. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so recourse-wise, you know, I can't even tell you how many emails I've received, how many Twitter posts, how many Facebook posts. I'm, I'm now getting handwritten letters from from the people of my area, and quite honestly, the people around the world. I literally just got a text message on my phone from my girlfriend who was overseas serving our country, and she heard what happened, and she told me that she was proud of me. And, oh, my soul, that is just making me feel that I'm not alone. Maybe you're more mature and less selfish than I am. I want these people corrected. I want them to be told that that is not acceptable. I don't want the precedent to stand. I mean, there, there's power to precedent. Now, do I understand correctly that, that from your having grown up on the House floor, this doesn't have a precedent? Is this something completely new to your knowledge? Has this happened this, before? Yeah, this, this, this doesn't happen. This, I mean, this doesn't happen. This, you do not silence someone like this. So it's not happened that I'm aware of. But but you're um, not seeking th- any legal or, or civil remedy for oh, this? No, no. Um, I think um, the remedy that I and um, the rest of the Michigan residents will receive will occur in November because um, there are two words that they prefer not to be spoken on the House for, and that is vagina and vasectomy. But there is one huge V word that they don't want us to do in November, and that is vote. They will get what's coming to them, and that will be in December when they are voted out of office and the Democrats take control of the House because this has been such an extreme legislature. The legislation that's been coming through is so extreme, whether it's the anti-choice legislation that that is at the crux of this issue, the voter suppression legislation that has gone through and is at the governor's desk right now, such extreme legislation, taking money away from our schools and giving it to um, businesses as a tax break, this is what this legislature has done. And I think the citizens will hold the legislature accountable in November. I only have less than a minute for you to answer this question, but I'm wondering, in light of the fact we're talking to Darcy Berner at this hour, I wonder if you have seen a crossover in the support that you're getting from not just women, but to men who recognize that this is not a women's issue, and do you see uh, support from Republican voters on this? Absolutely. There were quite a few men here for vagina monologues, and I am receiving quite a bit of contact from people who are actually anti-choice, but are mad, in fact, angry, that they would shut down to elected female legislators from speaking. This is about freedom of speech. At the end of the day, two legislators were denied the right to speak on the House floor. I just can't imagine how busy you are and everything you've gone through. I'm very grateful you were able to carve out some time to talk to us. More power to you and keep it up. And thank you so much. Oh, my soul. Thank you so much. And that is the voice of Representative Barbara Byram of the Michigan House of Representatives. And we will be talking to Darcy Berner here on In Deep coming up next. I'm Angie Coiro.
This is In Deep. I'm Angie Coro, and thank you for tuning in. We've got another segment here to go. And Washington State's Darcy Burner has actually visited our show before. She's running for Washington's first district congressional seat. Uh, the race has drawn national attention even before now because it's a new district, and Darcy is one of the most openly liberal candidates the country has seen in a long time. But this week, things really hit the fan when a video of Darcy Burner's keynote speech at the Netroots Nation conference went zipping around the Internet. In a discussion of cultural power, she made this request of the audience. A particular issue for women, but I would ask if you would that you give me 30 seconds in which you don't applaud or say anything. So if you are a woman in this room, and statistically what I'm about to say is true of about a third of the women in this room, if you are a woman in this room who has had an abortion and is willing to come out about it, please stand up. Don't, wait, please, wait, wait. Now, if you are willing to stand with every woman who is willing to come out about having had an abortion, please join them and stand up. This is how we change the stories in people's heads. Now you may applaud. Darcy Berner at the Netroots Nation Convention. Now, let me quiz you on what you just heard. Did you hear someone asking for women to come out of the closet about abortion and then for the others in the room to support her for standing up? Or did you hear an audience that was asked to applaud abortion? Well, if you listen to the tape, you'd think one thing. If you followed the media coverage afterward, you'd think something very different. Darcy Berner, you anticipated this to some extent. You you had the idea. First of all, welcome back to the show. And you and you had the idea that this might well be exactly how part of the media would turn the story on its head. Yeah, I, we we were concerned. Um, it, it is such a hot button issue, and an issue that is in some sense such a third rail to talk about that we um, figured in discussing it that there was a good chance that the right wing would distort anything I said or did um, to try to paint it in the worst possible light, which is part of why we asked for silence to begin with um, so that they wouldn't be able quite so easily to claim people were applauding abortion. What's interesting to me is some of the terminology that turned up, even in uh, ostensibly favorable press, what you'd consider to be the liberal press. Uh, Someone in the Seattle PI talked about the use of your voice and said that you had a a voice that could open a wall safe. And I thought, gosh, are we hearing about shrill women again? Yeah, that was uh, not one of Joel Connolly's finer moments. Um, but uh, he isn't actually particularly pro-choice. He has a history of writing columns um, saying basically that he's uncomfortable with choice, that he thinks NARAL and Planned Parenthood should be quiet about it, and that even if women have this right, nobody should talk about it. So it didn't surprise me terribly much that he wasn't very positive about this. The National Abortion Rights Action League should be quiet about choice. Apparently. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm glad he's an employed journalist. A lot of us aren't. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, Matt, our engineer here, obviously, he's got an engineer's ear. And he listened to the quality of your voice. And he said, for one thing, it's the sound system. It's not very favorable to her voice. But she's also, she's in an upper register. And he said, you know, men are raised to hear that as shrill. And whether you like it or not, they don't like authoritative women 
they don't like, you know, hearing women tell them what to do. And I'll bet a lot, you know, and he went on to, to conjecture that that could turn a lot of guys off. And that might be some of the reactionary stuff we're seeing, that you were speaking as a strong woman without a modifying, niceifying filter. <laughs> yes, well, I think that uh, being nice women uh, has resulted in us seeing the largest rollbacks to reproductive choice in our lifetimes. And maybe it's time for us to take a different approach. And the standing up for abortion is notably different. I mean, one thing you almost ever never ask women to do is divulge their personal life. It, it's, it's a real double-edged sword, isn't it? Because we're always saying that this is a woman's private personal choice. And now we're considering that the act of coming out and saying, this is my true history, might be more beneficial to the cause. Well, it's a lot like what we saw with the LGBT movement. When people spent so much of their time, um, so much of their lives in the closet, there were a lot of Americans who didn't think they knew anybody who was gay or who was a lesbian. And it wasn't until folks started coming out of the closet in significant numbers that they realized that their friends or their coworkers or their nieces or nephews or siblings or grandchildren um, were in fact the very people they had otherwise been demonizing. And it's much harder to demonize people that you actually know than it is to demonize some abstract human being that you think you've never met. What kind of delayed reaction have you heard? I mean, obviously, when this first hit the media, there was what looked suspiciously like, you know, a choreographed onslaught of she's applauding abortion. But once the initial dirt settled, what kind of reaction have you been hearing back? Well, you know, a lot of the reaction that I have gotten has actually been from women, um, especially from women who have, in fact, had abortions. Um, and it happened, it started immediately after the speech, where these women came up to me and they said, you know, I, I had an abortion. And they sometimes will tell me a little bit about the circumstances, and they'll say, I have felt all of this time like I was alone and like there was no one standing with me. And it meant a great deal for me to be in that room and feel 2,000 people stand with me. It was the first time I've ever felt like I wasn't alone on this. Um, and more and more people have been telling their stories, have been coming out, um, as it were, on this issue uh, to me um, in emails, uh, online, on blogs. Um, so I, I think that we're starting to see a shift in how some women are thinking about it because I've at least made it acceptable to open up the conversation. I'm talking to Darcy Berner. She's running for Congress from Washington's first district, Washington State's first district. You know, one thing I really regret, Darcy, from watching the video that's online at YouTube, and we're putting a link to that up on our website at uh, indeepradio.com. I wish we could see the audience recognizing that that would make the whole issue problematic. I don't know if you want the camera on the audience for that, but it, it would tell us so much to to see how differently women rose upon that request. And I say that because there seems to be this persistent idea that abortion is at the very least a little bit shameful or painful. And in point of fact, different women feel differently about abortion. And I have this vision. I wasn't fortunate enough to be at Netroots Nation. I have this vision when you say, if you've had an abortion, stand up. I can imagine some of the women kind of slowly rising, some of the women leaping nonchalantly to their feet, anything in between. And, and I just think that it's important to establish that, that an abortion is not the same experience for every woman. 
it isn't. I mean, for for some women, it was it it was an easy decision. For some women, it was a terribly hard decision. Um, there are all kinds of reasons that women terminate pregnancies, and um, the fact that we have a society in which women are never allowed to talk about it is an enormous problem. And I think, frankly, it's a it's a bigger problem for the women who have faced these terrible decisions. Um, I mean, for the women for whom that decision was the hardest, forcing them into silence about it and not allowing them to have the emotional support of the people around them does them a terrible disservice. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the role of the men in that room and the role of men with abortion. Within the last couple of weeks, we had Sarah Robinson on the air, and we were talking about how some men could understandably perceive a dual message, whereas as it took us so long to establish that a woman has, you know, a woman's body is her own sovereign nation, it's her own business. And yet now we're asking the men to come forward and to make this not a women's issue, but a person's issue, a civil rights issue. Uh, what kind of reactions did you see from the men in the room? Uh, well, you know, it was it was amazing. The majority of the room was men. The majority of attendees at Edwards Nation are men, and um, I saw uh, more than two thousand people stand in support of the women who had stood, um, and largely without hesitation and with a tremendous amount of respect and affection. That level of supportiveness is. Uh, fundamental to who we are as a country, the idea that we take care of each other, that we support each other is the kind of country we ought to be trying to build. Did the, did the men after your speech, immediately after your speech, was their response varied? What, what were some of the comments you heard? Um, you know, for the men who were there, I have, uh, with, the, with the singular exception of Joel Connolly, um, I have heard um, only very positive responses. I had some men talk to me about um, points in their lives in which um, the, the, their significant others had had abortions and what it meant for them in terms of their lives. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, I think that the most poignant moment that I had was some uh, was a, a young man telling me that um, he had it had never dawned on him that this was an issue that women were had to keep in the closet until I brought it up and that he understood the whole problem differently having been in the room and stood up with all of those women. You're not running for a, a federal office. You're running to represent your state uh, in our capital. And I find myself wondering how much of an issue is abortion at the ballot box in Washington state? Well, Washington state is an overwhelmingly pro-choice state. Um, we're one of the most pro-choice states in the nation, both in terms of how voters here feel about it and in terms of the policies that we have in place at a state level. Um, but this is an issue which is about more than just the laws that get passed and, and the votes that one takes. This is about what kind of a society we are and um, and about whether we actually support women and treat them as full and equal human beings. So let me ask how much rich risk you took as a candidate to make this a key issue just by virtue of bringing it up and doing something so demonstrative and so notable at Netroots Nation? <laughs> well, it's certainly risky. Uh, I mean, I, I, one of the things that has surprised me, to be honest, um, I was not surprised that the right wing came after me for this. 
um, I was surprised to see some of my pro-choice Democratic primary opponents um, uh, attacking me uh, and, you know, having their press people uh, tell the local press, for example, that I had asked people to cheer for abortion or how tacky was that or um, that that um, I'm a little bit shocked by how quickly some otherwise pro-choice Democrats are willing to undermine the women in that room who stood and the people who stood with them to... to um, to undermine what message they were sending uh, in order to score cheap points. Um, and that, I will admit, has been a bit of a disappointment to me. Some of the messaging that went on around you know, through the Democratic side actually had to do with pure politics, right? Gaining points, slamming one opponent, trying to boost another, trying to get back some sort of political gain. I mean, does, it, um, does, does, does the issue of abortion in some of these cases take a backseat to just plain politicking? Well, um, I think for some people it does. I mean, it's funny. There is a real distinction uh, in democratic politics between people who are trying to uh, make good things happen um, and people who are trying to um, advance their political careers uh, regardless of the impact on the issues that we are uh, ostensibly all fighting for. I'm very, very much in the camp that um, I'm in politics in order to to build a better world. And I'm certainly not one of the people who would ever um, attempt to score cheap points in ways that would undermine some cause that is critical to us. Um, but uh, it is the case that, that um, unfortunately, there are a lot of Democratic politicians for whom that doesn't apply. Let me ask you, insofar as you're comfortable pulling back the cover a little bit on your discussions of this, strictly as a matter of technique in a campaign, as a matter of logistics, what kind of discussions went on trying to decide whether this was a a worthwhile thing to do? Well, we had some discussions about the speech as a whole. Um, I mean, the, the, it was a 15-minute speech, and the piece that you played was, um, you know, 30, 45 seconds of it. And um, in the discussions uh, of the speech as a whole, which is about power and how we can use power to, to go on offense in the war on women rather than playing defense all of the time, um, we talked about how we could illustrate um, each of the different forms of power as succinctly and, and em, em, evocatively as possible. And, um, you know, there was some discussion on the campaign and then some discussion among friends about what the most effective way to convey each of those things would be. Um, we actually did a dry run of the presentation um, a, about a week before I delivered it at Network Nation. Um, and there was, you know, there were concerns that were raised about how much this would open me up to attack. But ultimately, um, you know, my decision was that it was too important that we make the point um, to not do it. That we don't have enough people in politics um, on the Democratic side who are willing to stand up and do the right thing no matter what happens. Um, I mean, I, I have a friend, retired uh, former former Congressman Tom Periello, who took a vote for the energy bill um, in running in a district that's Republican-leaning um, back uh, in after the 2008 elections when he was in Congress. And he was asked by a member of the press, you know, w- was that the right thing to do? It might cost you your seat. 
and he said, um, there are some things that are more important than getting reelected. And I think that we need more politicians who are willing to stand up and do the right thing, regardless of cost. And um, if that's what I want, then I need to lead by example. Talking to Darcy Burner, Washington State's first di- first district running for office there. I cannot say that today for some reason, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, actually, Darcy, to, to hear you putting the emphasis on getting the right message out instead of, you know, winning the seat. Although I must say that many of us would like to see you win that seat. Uh, th- how comfortable are you at this point in the campaign? Well, so um, things are certainly looking good. Uh, the the polling that has been done shows me with a significant lead in the primary uh, and doing better against the Republican opponent than um, anyone else in the race. Uh, the biggest concern that we have is that one of my opponents is worth between 50 and $100 million and um, put millions of dollars into her last campaign. We think she's going to try to buy the seat. Um, we know she's dropped at least $300,000 into this campaign. And so um, our challenge is making sure we have the resources to communicate with voters and not just be drowned out by that. Darcy, thank you so much for coming back. And we're going to put a link to our earlier discussion with you about that up on our website, too, so people can hear our earlier conversation. Thank you and good luck. Thank you. My pleasure. Darcy Burner from Washington's 1st District. That's a wrap on this hour. Stick around. We're going to be talking next hour with a return guest, Spocko. You enjoyed him so much the first time. We're going to spend the next hour talking about this week's political victories and getting his insights on some of the logistics and techniques used to get them. I'm Angie Carter. This is Indeed. But I'd rather live my own damn way. We'll take our culture back someday. But it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But I know it's going to get better. Thanks for tuning in this week to In Deep with Angie Coiro, a production of Talkback Studios. You can get more information about us at indeepradio.com. And while you're there, you can become a member and support our work. There's a link there to contact us, too, with any questions or feedback. We're developing a series on mental health issues in our country, especially in this economy. And we'd love to have you be part of that. Please send us your topic suggestions, your stories, and your questions through our website. Click the contact button at indeepradio.com. Join us again this time next week for two more hours of in-depth conversation. I'm Angie Carr. We'll see you then. You're listening to WPWC, 1480 AM, Dumfries, Virginia. We Act Radio, home of Washington's progressive working community.